Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table, with your hosts, Anna Wolfenden and Derek Weston. Hello, welcome back to the Food and Faith Podcast. This is Derek Weston, and today's guest is Dr. Melanie Harris. Dr. Harris's full bio will be in the show notes, but let me try to hit some of the highlights here. She is Professor of Black Feminist and Womanist Theologies, jointly appointed with African American Studies at Wake Forest University. She also serves as the Director of Food, Health, and Ecological Well-Being at Wake Forest University. A graduate of the Harvard Leadership Program, her administrative leadership focuses on the areas of inclusive excellence, equity, and access in higher education and ethical leadership. Dr. Harris's scholarship critically examines intersections between race, religion, gender, and environmental ethics. She is the author of many scholarly articles and books, including Gifts of Virtue, Alice Walker and Womanist Ethics, Eco-Womanism, Earth-Honoring Faiths, and co-editor of Faith, Feminism, and Scholarship, The Next Generation, as well as numerous journal articles and book chapters. As many of you know, Wake Forest is a major part of this podcast's history, and as you'll hear in this interview, the Food, Health, and Ecological Wellbeing program at Wake couldn't be in better hands. If you'd like to help keep the Food and Faith podcast going, you can support us on Patreon. Just go to www.patreon.com slash foodandfaithpodcast. You can support us at any amount, and a huge thank you to our current supporters. Okay, on to my conversation with Dr. Melanie Harris. All right, we are here with Dr. Melanie Harris. Dr. Harris, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for this invitation. It's wonderful to be with you. Um, we're going to have a lot of questions for you, a lot of things that I want to talk about, but we want to we start all of our conversations with the question of what is your geography? What is the land, the uh, people, the places, the food, music that have shaped you uh, to do the work, to be the person that you are and to do the work that you're doing? Mm, thank you. It's such an inviting question. So thank you. I do come from tri-blood peoples. I am a woman of African descent and also of Native American descent in the Cherokee and Blackfoot line. And then my peoples, like many African Americans in the United States of America, also have blood in them from white people. And so those three racial lines are part of my own lineage. I consider that a really important naming in terms of land as well, in part because my heart calls very deeply to Colorado, which is where I was born and where my grandparents were and my parents were for a very, very long time. Um, but their path started with the Great Migration. And so their path started in Mississippi. And a lot of the land there is very deeply important to, to me and to my family. So I'm grateful for those lands and the kind of um, processing where my heart really opens up is actually in New Mexico, Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I have wonderful friends and wonderful family out there as well. And that's really where in the midst of desert, but then in the midst of so much love and community, um, so many beautiful vistas and cliffs and places to hike and places to be really in communion with the earth really deeply. Is, uh, is a really important home place for me as well. Fantastic. Uh, I love I love New Mexico. I love the architecture. I love the the landscapes. I've been there a couple of times and have wanted to get there, um, get back there a couple of times. Um, so before we we talk about what you're doing at Wake Forest, as I was as I was uh, reacquainting myself with your bio, 
Um, I, I, I had completely overlooked the fact that uh, your book was sitting on my shelf. This book, oh, Eco Womanism. And, and so before we, we jump into the Wake Forest stuff, I would love for you, if you could please give our audience just sort of a, a, a brief overview of, of eco-womanism. So the book is Eco-Womanism, uh, African-American Women and Earth-Honoring Faiths. Um, and I love this, absolutely love this book. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering if you could give our, our listeners just sort of a brief overview of what is eco-womanism? I think that's probably a term a lot of people don't know very well. And 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 what what led you on the path? I mean, there there's a lot of um, deep connection to land in this book, and so I, I'm just wondering if you might be able to give us a little bit of background on that. Thank you. Eco-womanism is an approach to environmental justice that really centers the voices and perspectives of women of color and specifically women of African descent. And this is so central in the work of ecological justice and environmental justice right now because it's often the case that those who contribute the least to climate crises are the ones who actually pay the most for climate crises. So across the entire globe, mostly communities of color are the ones bearing the brunt of the weight of climate change disasters, um, displacement, um, rising waters, and then reduction of so much land uh, for so many different reasons, soil pollution and so much more. So eco-womanism really does it puts forward and highlights these particular voices in part because generally speaking, in the environmental movement, most of the ways that we think about uh, taking care of the environment, preserving the, the environment and conserving the environment are shaped by white men mm. and shaped by whiteness in a lot of ways. And so there's this kind of colonial framework that accompanies basic environmental movement work. And uh, it's the work of Robert Bullard, the work of Dorsetti E. Taylor, the work of so many African-American environmental justice keepers in the sciences, but also through theology and religion that have begun to really prompt us to think differently about the norms of environmental work. And especially when those norms exclude the voices of Native Americans, Indigenous peoples, exclude the voices of African-Americans, exclude the voices of Asian-Americans, and not taking seriously the histories of these peoples, um, particularly in the United States of America. And so just like womanist theology really was a way of approaching feminist theology and Black liberation theology to push the envelope around race, class, and gender analysis, eco-womanism does the same that it really says that you actually have to have at least these three elements, a whole lot more, but at least these three elements in any approach to looking at environmental racism, to looking at environmental justice, that it's not okay to not ask a question about race. And it's not okay to not ask a question about gender. It's not okay to not ask a question about class. You have to ask all these questions on a whole lot more in order to actually come up with some kind of solutions. So eco-womanism really does foreground the voices of women of African descent when we're thinking about how to take care, but then also how to create more sustainable practices to be with the earth. 
I love that. Thank you for that. And and I, I again, want to highly recommend the book to people. Um, I think one of the things that, um, well, there's a couple things. One is, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking about the work of Carolyn Finney um, and her book, Black Faces, White Spaces, and how often um, the ideas that the people who are doing environmental work are white faces that and 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 there's sort of this idea that that African Americans don't care about um, environmental causes. We don't care about ecology. We don't care about and and Carolyn Finney's you know to her work that we don't care about wilderness. We don't care about wide open spaces. And it's it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. Um, and you you kind of point to how how these things are are so deeply rooted in African culture that that care for the earth that connection to the earth, and and not only was it rooted in African culture in Africa, but we brought a lot of that with us. And it's in fact the reason that many of us were brought was because mm-hmm. of our connection to the land. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I just I'm so grateful that there are voices like yours that are out there. Um, kind of correcting that narrative that that we don't care about what's happening in the environment, that we don't care about what's happening in the outdoors. Um, it's 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 good to have that piece there. Um, so I want to I want to um, shift gears a little bit to your work at um, at Wake Forest. So mm-hmm. so many of us, um, many of us who are connected to this show. Um, many of us did the Regenerate Fellowship that was a part of Wake Forest. Many of us were uh, uh, connected with Fred Bonson when he was in that role. Um, and so you're the Director of Food, Health, and Ecology and Wellbeing Program there at Wake Forest. And I'm just kind of wondering, um, first, if you could give us some background on, on um, what led you to this, to this place, um, and then sort of a little bit of an overview on the program. Mm, Thank you so much. I think it's really a passion for the earth and really keeping up with where the conversation is in environmental justice work. And Fred has been a wonderful conversation partner with me for a long time. Um, And I'm really grateful for the work that he really um, set a foundation for here at Wake Forest University. Before Fred, there really wasn't the same kind of attention to um, earth care or sustainability. And I think with his leadership, there was a deep spirituality and an attention to spiritual ecology, essentially, um, that many people shied away from, um, in part because it does lend itself towards a host of other conversations, such Mm. as contemplative practice and interfaith realities around climate change. How are we together to be with other people on the planet who don't identify as Christian and who may not use those categories in terms of how they think about environmental justice? So I'm really grateful for Fred's work and the foundation that he set. In conversation with him, as I was considering actually taking the position, it really was clear, I think, to the both of us, as many, um, it is clear to many, that there is a rise of communities of color and particularly leadership in the environmental justice movement that is being led by Black women. 
and women of color. And in part because oftentimes it's these um, people, Black women, who are not just activists, but also leaders in their own communities, but really paying attention to the connections. So paying attention to where women and where children are eating and how they have access to food in terms of food justice. Um, paying attention to what the educational systems are actually able to offer children or not offer children, where Black women and Black men are getting stuck, essentially, in systems um, that are not necessarily designed to honor their full humanity, in part because of the color of their skin. And so oftentimes it has been and is in this moment, a lot of Black women who have been activists, particularly in the Black Lives Matter movement, but activists generally in social justice, who are also now really taking up this new mantle of recognizing the real deep connection to ecological care. So the work that we've been able to do just in the two years that I've been here so far is to really start gathering more women of color and specifically African-American women environmental activists. And that's really to start with a frame of eco-womanism, really centering that particular way of thinking and approaching environmental justice, but also to recognize that there is a deep connection, particularly for people of color and black people, a deep connection to the earth and that there's a paradoxical connection mm. to the earth. And so a lot of the work of eco-womanism, as you just mentioned, um, that, that Carolyn Finney lifts up, a lot of it is mapped onto this paradoxical relationship with white supremacy and the history of white supremacy. And I appreciate her work so much because it allows us to actually vocalize the fact that a lot of times the movement has shunned people of color and African-American people from the movement because they've assumed that black people are only worried about racism and that there is a particular trope and a particular way of resisting racism. There's a particular way of joining the movement to produce racial justice. That doesn't include the earth. <laughs> um, and so I appreciate the work of eco-womanism because it too is a voice that is trying to help uh, generally the, un undo this myth that black people are not concerned about the earth. That in fact, black people are people, they're beings on the planet and that they are not just concerned about the planet but they're also concerned about themselves. One of the critiques of eco-womanism that has come down the pike is this concern about the self, this concern about the black self. And the critique has been often that is, uh, is that too anthropocentric? Is mm. it too anthropocentric to focus on the black self? And so eco-womanism's response to that is no, <laughs> white supremacist society and context, you have to focus on the black self. Yes, you focus on the planets, and you focus on the earth, you focus on all beings, but yes, you have to highlight the being of the black self even and the care of that black self being even as you are caring for the planet and for the earth. And so that's the work that we're really focusing on in FEW right now, the Food, Health and Ecological Wellbeing Program is to really focus on this connection between the black self and in, in some cases, the black woman self and the planet self. How do you provide care for the self? How do you provide care for the planet and see these as interwoven partners and conversation partners? 
because so much of the work of activism can be depleting, so much of the work of activism can be exhausting, and the burnout rate, generally speaking, in any form of ministry, but particularly social activism, is very high. Mm -hmm. We have actually decided and discerned to focus on creating retreats for leaders and activists. And so in October, just about two weeks ago, we hosted about 20 or 25 different environmental justice keepers and activists across the world. We had uh, the pleasure of actually working with a number of different activists from Brazil, Salvador Bahia, um, who work in the tradition of Condomble, which is an African indigenous religious tradition that really um, highlights not just African cosmology, but really has its entire religious kind of worldview, peeling, peeling out uh, particular characteristics of the earth and associate them, associating them with a particular divine spirit. In the Condomble, the divine spirits are called Orishas, and they serve as major ancestors. And in every Orisha, there is a characteristic, usually of earth, um, or that Arisha is connected to or symbolizes an element of earth. So by bringing in these activists all the way from Brazil and then having really important conversation about how do you care for yourself as an activist with activists here in the United States of America, we were actually able to look at some of the frameworks in mental health. And here I'm really grateful for the work of the Root Cause Collective and A.W. Shields in Durham. Their extraordinary work as a collective of mental health providers really did provide some really important framework for how do we take care of ourselves as activists and how do the frameworks of how we think of ourselves as whole beings also then translate to how we begin to think about approaches to the earth. And for eco-womanism, this is both practice and theory in that a lot of times as activists, we're actually trained to bifurcate ourselves. Mm -hmm. We're actually trained to separate ourselves in many different ways so that we can be present for multiple realities, multiple um, justice issues at the, same at the same time, but not really giving attention to the energy that it takes. And so very deeply reflective of how earth moves and how earth works, it's important to recognize that there is a source, there is a ground for the energy that we will need to be able to move and that there is a kind of trick of the mind or change of the mind that can take place to recognize that you are a whole being. Mm. And there are different ways of thinking and being as an activist that then allow us to give ourselves permission to be fully whole in each context, in each situation, in each crisis, and to build a life then as an activist in community that will allow us to be whole and a lot of times that means not doing all the work ourselves. Mm. So it's a very different leadership model. It's a very collaborative leadership model. Um, and it's a really deep way of thinking about yourself in community with the earth. Mm. All right. You said a lot of things that I really want to follow up on. So I was writing things down furiously as you were talking. Um, so I'm going to make sure that we hit as many of these as possible. Um, Drill down, if you if you will, a little bit on what are the unique mental health challenges 
of ecological activists of color. Mm-hmm. I feel like I feel like there's there's it's really easy to speak to sort of the burnout general that people in ministry might feel or or the burnout that people in activism might feel. But but if we could talk, if we could focus in a little bit on what are the unique challenges of mental health challenges for um, people of color, black people who are working in ecological spaces? Thanks. A great question. One of the pressures, I think, comes from just knowing what time it is on the planet. Um, We are in crisis, deep, deep crisis. And if we do not change, and even if we do change, um, we are still facing extraordinary change and extraordinary trauma to the earth and to life as we know it, even in the next 50 years. Uh, the layers of loss and grief that are present with us even now, um, as we have lost so many species, as we've lost so many um, parts of the earth, um, the grief is very significant. And it can lead one, just knowing the grief, even scientifically, it can lead one to a sense of loss, a sense of hopelessness, and certainly down a path of depression. And so just the reality of where we are right now on the planet, what we call the green blues, right, can lead you to a place of of real deep deep, um, disappointment and dismay. And that kind of dismay when named can be, um, it can be liberating actually to name it and then to name it in community that you're not the only one facing this reality, and you're not the only one having to fight this reality alone. Oftentimes as activists, uh, we are often trained to ignore the dismay and the and the reality of um, how depressing injustice is. Um, but by actually taking attention and giving attention to our own mental health and recognizing that we need to come up with strategies to deal with depression, that we need to actually come up with strategies to be able to name when we are feeling depressed um, and to then have those strategies on hand and even accountability partners, right? On hand to say, are you actually taking the time that you need to walk, to meditate, to drink water? Do you need to change your diet at this particular point? And then particularly for the gift of the Root Cause Collective that AW Um, really invited participants to know, is it time to start thinking about your own mind? Um, Is it time to start thinking about a therapist or talking in in a group, a group, um, kind of a group therapy kind of um, setting, just so that you don't feel so isolated and alone in the work? What we recognize, particularly as um, as women of color, but also as people of color in the environmental justice movement, is that our entree into environmental justice is very different from our white colleagues, um, because so many of us have be, be been and we've inherited a lot um, of deep commitment and deep connection to the earth, but we've also inherited a lot of conflict and conflicting kind of uh, connection with with and to the earth because of the reality of slavery and the reality of white supremacy and kind of white supremacist thinking. So the image that I often use to express this logic of domination is the image of the lynching tree. 
Now, for many African-Americans, the image of the lynching tree is not a nature image. Mm. It's not something that you actually want to gravitate to because of the horror and trauma that it represents and that it is and has been for our peoples. And at the same time, there is something deeply, deeply important in environmental justice and particularly for eco-womanism about healing ourselves to the point where we can see not just the Black life and lives, but also see the tree Mm. and the relationship between the lynching tree and the Black life or lives that were lost. So in a mapping of white supremacy, the tree is used to kill and snuff out Black life. But the tree is not responsible for killing Black life. It's It's being used as a tool. And so both the tree and the Black body in this scene of lynching are brothers, sisters, kin, both kind of warped in this um, reality of white supremacy. And that oftentimes is what ecological justice keepers who are people of color are trying to heal even unconsciously. We are always trying to heal our connection with the earth, which has been stolen from us by these entrapments and actual um, violences that have come out of white supremacist action and activity. So for that kind of healing, you need a balm in Gilead. That kind of healing, you need a different source. Um, And a lot of times it is the rituals that we go to, the sounds, not just from Black Christianity, but from African drum and music and dancing for that kind of healing. And so the work really for many of us as activists is trying to come up with those balms, trying to come up with those healing agents, literally to be able to heal our relationship with the earth, recognizing um, that that too takes a lot of courage. Hmm. Hmm. I'm, I'm struck so deeply by that because um, even in, in the, the community gardening work that I do, um, recognizing the barriers that exist between people of color and wanting to engage even in that kind of work because of the legacy of enslavement. Um, because of the legacy of of genocide on the land, because of the legacy of of immigration that we're currently living with, right? That that these things are 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 very present, um, and I, I I I talk about this, you know, I talk about how how um, that's a barrier for a lot of people, and, and I I just I, I imagine that. There's probably classes and whole retreats that are spent thinking about the beginnings of healing that relationship. And as you talk about, there's a lot of different approaches to it. But I, I just, I just wonder, just very broadly, just very broadly, like what are the steps towards, what are the steps towards that healing? Like where, what is, how do we, how do we begin to move there, recognizing, and that that image of the lynching tree is so powerful. How do we begin to even take the the steps towards that healing when there are um, 
you know, I, I grew up in, I grew up in Pittsburgh and a very urban part of the city of, and very much away from rural life, Pittsburgh being one of those great migration locations. Um, and I grew up around people who said, you know, I won't even pick the cotton out of a Tylenol bottle, you know, stuff like that. And so how does that, how does that relationship begin to heal? Like what are, what are the beginning steps there? Yeah, I've been so encouraged <clears throat> and wrestling with this question for a while, but really encouraged by the voice of Bell Hooks mm. and Alice Walker. And in Touching the Earth, which is an essay by Bell Hooks and her Sisters of the Yam um, book and volume, she really does create this uh, map for us to be able to begin taking a step towards healing. And it is essentially an invitation to start planting something to start growing something and in the book she articulates that this particular season in her life she had no green thumb and she was living in new york <laughs> and all these plants that were halfway alive <laughs> and she recalled though being in, in kentucky growing up and being just surrounded by this grandfather wisdom, grandfather love of all of these beautiful gardens um, that her grandparents would then nurture over time. So this Southern memory that she has uh, walks with her and that agricultural memory of connection with the land walks with her her entire life. And so she uses that as a first step towards healing her own relationship. And it's not healing her green thumb as much as it is a full recognition that this agricultural memory of her ancestors is in her. Mm. It never left her. Mm. And deepening in that truth that the wisdom of our ancestors, the full healing, the full ability to be whole with the earth, that is still with us that is still in us. And so a second step in healing is to get still enough with the earth to recognize that. Mm. I appreciate Bell Hooks work and Alice Walker in part because of the powerful black feminists that they are and womanists that they are in part because they also lean into another different spiritual practice mm. of meditation. Mm. In both these women's cases, Bell Hooks and Alice Walker, Buddhism became one of the central religious practices for them as Black women to deal with the pressures and stresses of racism and sexism and living in patriarchal context and fighting against classism and ecological devastation. So this contemplative practice of way of being, being still actually is a kind of second step of recognizing this truth that we are the earth and that the earth is us. And that the same wisdom, the same love, the same power that the ancestors had as a communing ability to hear the earth, to talk to the earth. So I think of Harriet Tubman, right? Actually speaking to, communing with trees to know which direction to go to head north. Mm. This ability is still in us. Mm. And that kind of opening 
we can map out a lot of theory as Bell Hooks has done and certainly as eco-womanism does, but there's a lot of practice too to telling Black people that they can take a nap, yeah. helping Black people rest, finding and creating communities that are absolutely safe so that we can rest. And sometimes those spaces are created by allies who do not look like us. And that's sometimes difficult for some of us as Black allies, <laughs> that the allies are also earth beings too. And that a lot of allies who do a lot of work in environmental justice work, when they think that it's just the gardening and it's just the communing with the planet and it's just being and having their hands in the dirt, that's justice work. That's the mistake. A lot of times that the justice work for the earth is also creating safe space for all beings, including black beings on the earth. So this kind of anti-racist frame really does allow us to commune differently with each other, but it also helps us to begin to think about how we can heal the planet. Love that. Um, so you, even in your, um, response here you mentioned you mentioned bringing in buddhism um, and you've mentioned uh you mentioned both in your book and in and sort of talking about the retreats um bringing in language and imagery and metaphor from other religious traditions beyond christianity and i'm i'm just wondering um you know a lot of people will um kind of bristle at, at bringing in those sorts of those languages. And yet I've, I, you know, um, I have found so much meaning in bringing in those, those other, uh, other traditions, you know, thinking about ancestor uh, veneration, thinking about um, various understandings of gods and goddesses as they're, they're connected to the earth. So how do we reconcile with a Christian theology, being able to bring in um, without you know, without appropriation, but being able to bring in those um, those other images, those other those other terms from other other religious viewpoints that actually help us get to this deeper understanding of our connection to Earth. Mm, thank you. That's a beautiful question. I'm really encouraged by the work of Dolores Williams, who is a pioneering womanist theologian. And even in her articulation of womanism very early in the 19, late 1970s and 1980s, it was her voice that helped to open the stage for interfaith and interreligious conversation, even in womanist thought. And she named what was really central for all womanist theology to do, which is to be multivocal. To be able to recognize that in Black tone and in Black song and in Black music, there are a number of different voices uh, singing at the same time, moving at the same time. So if we think about jazz or we think about gospel or gospel choir, um, there are all these different tonalities being heard and experienced, all these different movements of the voice that are being experienced all at the same time. And it's only by being able to embody the fullness of that sound that you can feel a deep presence of the plethora of ways of Black life. So to try to adopt 
a kind of hierarchical uh, frame and map it onto that multivocal way of being would actually be to dilute the div rich diversity um, that is in Black life. Mm. It would be as if one would take, um, you know, a, a red microscope and put it on a very colorful bug with beautiful shell and, um, and only be able to see the bug is red. Mm. So this mislens, right, or mislooking um, actually tries to push us into not thinking that Black life is as beautiful and as powerful and as full and as varied as it actually is. So living into this kind of multivocal way of being is one approach that eco-womanism really does take and really pushing the envelope around um, interfaith and intra-religious and inter-religious reality. Um, all people of African descent, especially in the United States of America, are not the same. Uh, we often are people who practice multiple religious practices um, at the same time. And this is a part of the history, right, of, of being Black in America, so that the remnants of African cosmology, but also the remnants of African religion, live in the Baptist shout. Mm. And this reality of um, African-American religion, especially here, but throughout the world, but especially here, um, is often negated in order for it to fit very nicely in Eurocentric, white, Western um, kind of Christian categories. And that's just not our reality. That's just not our truth. And so eco-womanism is really, really, um, and this became really important, I think, for me as a thinker, I'm what they call a third wave womanist. And so um, there are two generations, literally, of Black womanist scholars ahead of me. And as a third wave womanist, I have the opportunity, and because of the sacrifices that they made, to be able to open the door a little wider, to recognize that it is not just getting Black women's freedom and liberated voices in the church, um, but it is also getting Black women's political um, realities and their different approaches um, out there and also honoring the sexual orientation and sexual flow of Black women and the variety of different ways that that can be beautiful on the planet. Recognizing that race and colorism is also a part of the kind of disentanglement that Black women particularly have to do and so too is religion that there is something oppressive about being a part of a black religion that silences the voices of others. Mm. And so in that sense, yes, Christian theology has a lot of growing up to do. <laughs> so a lot in wrestling and struggling and changing and opening and closing down. Um, but then eventually recognizing that the truth of the spirit, the truth of life, the truth of Ashe is in fact in another Black person. Mm. Uh, even though their religious tradition might be different. And to celebrate that and to see that beauty as a beauty of earth, um, that's the kind of theological transformation that has to take place in order for us to then be able to come together and recognize the hope for ecological justice that we all can still have. Mm. 
Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Um, that that felt most appropriate there. Um, so I guess I guess I, I was going to hold this question till later, but I, I guess I want to I guess want to ask it now. Um, where does this conversation fit in the larger conversation of theological education? Mm-hmm. Where. Um, yeah, I guess I'll maybe I'll keep it that simple. Where does this conversation fit within the larger conversation, within the larger context of yes. theological education? Yeah, so theological education is moving through a lot of transition right now in this moment, and some of that is is COVID related. Um, a lot of that is the reality that many of our faith communities have had to transform themselves and retransform themselves. Um, in the midst of the past two years of just reality, um, not just working with people through the ravages of sickness and illness and death, but also having to shut down almost completely. And then so in theological education, we're really at this turning point of also recognizing that the kind of training that we provided for ministers five years ago is no longer enough, that there are totally new skill sets that ministers and faith keepers um, and even leaders in religion have to have now. And that the people who are coming to theological education are also different. Um, And this change has actually been happening, you know, for some time Um, in theological education, probably for the past 25 years, we've been wrestling with the realities of different enrollment numbers and different struggles on how to keep the doors open. Um, Some of this has been offset by the development of extraordinary online programming and allowing us to really envision um, leadership training in a different way and theological imagination in a different way to be able to finish a degree online, right, in in less than two years. Um, And to have the kind of credibility, but also to have the real deep tools of theological inquiry to be able to then go into any kind of faith or interfaith context and host a conversation, a real conversation that's life-giving and sustaining for a particular community. So in terms of theological education, we are also um, facing a variety of different crises um, and just institution to institution across theological education. If you ask any dean, any faculty member, and certainly any president, there are lists of things that they would like to ask for if the resources were totally abundant. For some of us, this has meant um, re-articulating uh, what's most important. And, mm-hmm. and for many of us, the justice and social justice Um, elements of theological education continue to be key, even in the midst of worrying about enrollment and even in the midst of worrying about who's coming in the door and how to meet each student. That earth justice is still central to the way that we shape ministers, that ecological justice and teaching ministers, people, lay people, how to be able to have and think about stewardship in the neighborhood that they are in. So the reality is that for many of us who serve in communities of color, we're living in neighborhoods as food deserts. Mm -hmm. And so that there's an obvious kind of link in terms of ministry of providing food and providing shelter, 
But actually the deeper question that Heber Brown and so many other takes on is how do we actually create the space for there to be farms here where we are literally in the church or on the church grounds? How do we actually combat food injustice right here? Um, and being able to reimagine what our own church life looks like so that it's not just using styrofoam um, containers to fill meals, but to actually create a sustainable community within the church. So these kinds of ideas, um, this kind of regeneration, right? These kind of ideas are becoming more and more important, I think, for most centers in theological education. And Wake Forest, I think, has done a really great job of being a beacon of hope on how to create not just a curriculum, but also how to create um, actual practice in the classroom that students can have. Eco-womanism is a course that I've had the pleasure of teaching a few times now at Wake Forest Divinity. And every time the students do come out transformed and really deeply grateful, in part because the class does give them tools on how to do ecological justice, but also because it kind of pushes us theologically to think outside the box, to think beyond the categories that many of us are introduced to from the very beginning. So more and more throughout the country, uh, we are seeing theological education um, centers, seminaries, theological institutions really begin to embed um, either environmental justice centers or programs um, as a part of their curriculum or do their best to invite ecological justice uh, teaching into their curriculum and on their faculty. Yeah, that's, and, and I applaud those efforts. And again, I think Wake Forest, as you said, has been at the forefront of a lot of those efforts um, because we have to, we have to train leaders for the church for, for a future that, you know, we probably couldn't have imagined um, even a decade ago. Um, I want to make sure that we talk about food. Uh, this is this is the Food and Faith podcast. Um, <laughs> where does where does food fit into the to the program? Where does food? Uh, uh, you know, it's, it seems like um, you've you've hinted a little bit at some places where food is. Uh, whether we're talking about um, food insecure areas, whether we're talking about getting people growing things, but where how does food tie into? The program overall um, as you're thinking about these ecological connections. Yeah, thank you so much. It's a gift uh, to be thinking with you about where we are and also where we hope to be. Um, one of the most important elements, as I mentioned, for the beginning of my own leadership for the Food Health and Ecological Wellbeing program has really been around the connection with leadership and mental health, and particularly environmental justice leadership and mental health. One of the gifts of the course that we can give to our own bodies themselves is indeed healthy and sustainable food. And so we have developed a new consciousness around how food is created for us as activists, the decisions that we make around food as individuals, but then also how we can provide different options and access points for the faith communities and communities that we serve to be able to access food differently. So this is one of the reasons why I'm so grateful that uh, Reverend Dr. Heber Brown and Dr. Chris Carter, um, we've partnered recently with um, Elijah Farms in Durham, North Carolina, led by some powerful Black women 
um, who have really embodied the kind of spirit of eco-womanism essentially by starting farms. Um, in the case of Elijah's farm in Durham, it's a powerful Amber, is a powerful uh, black woman farmer, a, um, a seminary graduate who basically felt a call to the earth, <laughs> a call to farm and to recreate as much as possible the kind of life sustainable and life affirming spaces, particularly for her own self, but also for black peoples and black communities. And so Elijah Farm is now essentially located in North Durham, um, a space that's open, not just as a farm, but also really becoming more open for sp spiritual community. So just at the end of this month, um, October, we had a beautiful service with the Root Church, which is a part of the Root Cause Collective of lots of children and lots of families and lots of African drum and dancing and blessing of the earth um, as we move through a beautiful worship service together right there on the farm. So this is particularly important in part because so many of us have been introduced to religious life and worship inside and in inside spaces. And so to be able to be black and be free on land that was owned by white plantation keepers at one point to literally be able to reclaim the land mm -hmm. and to turn it back into a life affirming space for worship and practice and farming is one of the ways in which the food health and ecological well-being program is, is partnering with a number of different people and groups right now to be able to do that kind of focus on food. I will say as an eco-womanist, I like many um, black women and black girls, I was trained to be able to know how to cook a few things in the kitchen. <laughs> including greens and cornbread. But it is my brother in our family who is the, the real chef. Mm. And actually the men in my family who are some of the most powerful cooks. Mm. And so this gender reversal, at least in my own family, has been really key to creating a kind of womanist uh, perspective and an openness to gender um, being floating categories instead of cemented categories. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that is another opening, I think, for eco-womanism, um, for us to really think about how masculinity begins to shift mm -hmm. when we think about food justice and care for the earth, but also care for food and care for family. It does not actually fit the trope of a kind of um, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s responsibility of a Black man. Mm. Um, and a lot of that domestic work, a lot of the cooking in the real sense of Black community has always actually been held by both Black men and Black women. Mm. So that this kind of white Eurocentric way of thinking about gender roles um, is actually destabilized when we look at the, the real fruit of Black life and Black family. Mm. I love that. That is beautiful. I feel like I could talk to you for a lot longer, but <laughs> the honoring of your time. And um, so let me let me ask you the question that we we always end with, and that is the question of what is giving you hope? 
Um, not just hope that, um, not hope that ignores the big issues that are in the world around us, particularly the ecological issues in the world around us, but hope that gives you the courage and resilience to get up, get out there, teach, lead the ways that you do. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I have the gift of being a mother. And as a parent, it is often the case that you have to get up. <laughs> so true. <laughs> There, there are other humans and other <laughs> beings waiting on your arrival to be able to move and, and have their full being um, in the earth. And I have to admit that a part of the joy of being a parent has created a new hope in me for each and every day. Mm. It is also true that there is the reality that my, my child will not grow up on the same earth that I did mm. and that there will be lots of loss mm. that my child will have to deal with as every child will have to deal with as they grow into the realities of what the Anthropocene actually will demand of them. So I find deep hope in recognizing that the same ancestral wisdom, the same spiritual song, the same movement of music and dance that is mapped onto me is mapped onto him as well. And that I find hope and practice faith in believing that that same ancestral voice will hold him through the next phase of the planet. Mm. That my job as a parent is to nurture that echo, to nurture those songs, to nurture that faith, those dances, that food, to help him to remember that inner being, that inner stillness, that inner hope, that is a window and a door for that ancestral wisdom to really unfold. It is that wisdom I truly believe that will carry him and will carry all of the children that we have on earth now through. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so how can people connect with you, connect with uh, the program at Wake Forest? How can people um, just uh, be more involved in what it is that you all are doing down there, which is such great work? Thank you. I would definitely invite people to email me and you can find me at the Wake Forest School of Divinity website at mharris at wfu.edu and to also take a look at our website for food, health, and ecological well-being. We are in transition as I've been in leadership and we're getting new programming going. And so um, just in our program, and we also are in transition as an institution, getting ready to receive a new interim dean. And so um, over the next few months, there'll be lots of different changes to the website. Um, but few, the website at Food, Health, and Ecological Wellbeing is a really great place to be able to see uh, where we're going and what we're doing. Excellent. Well, Dr. Harris, thank you so much for your time. I, I could have spoken to you for another hour. Um, I have still feel like I have a lot of questions. <laughs> we're gonna have to we're gonna have to have you back. Um, but thank you for the ways that you are leading this program forward in in 
really beautiful ways. Mm. Uh, this program that has meant a lot to so many of us, um, just really excited to see the next uh, the next steps that happen under your leadership. So thank you and uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you, Derek. This has been such a joy to be with you and to share conversation. Thank you again for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep and Till. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.